I'll take your Bibles and turn to the book of Nehemiah, chapter 9. We're going to be at the end of chapter 9 and then into chapter 10. And as you can see uh, from your Bible, we're getting uh, real close to the home stretch here. Next uh, few weeks, we'll, we'll end our study uh, of the book of uh, Nehemiah. You'll also notice, by the way, in your uh, study notes today, uh, in your bulletin, I had a couple of people I was talking with uh, last week, and I was challenging them to study on their own a little bit more. And um, they said, well, you know, where would I go? What are some resources? And I gave you three books that are, uh, that are there uh, at the bottom uh, of your notes uh, that I think would be very helpful to you. They're very uh, easily understood uh, commentaries in the book of uh, Nehemiah, and I think you'll appreciate the things uh, that are said uh, in, those, uh, in those resources. If you want to take the time to get them, I think you can get them all on Amazon, get them shipped right to your door, and uh, I challenge you to continue to be a student of the Word. Don't just sit here for uh, 45 minutes or so and listen to me teach and, and assume that that's all there is in a particular text, uh, because I guarantee you, you can squeeze it a little bit more, and uh, there'll be some more good stuff that'll come out of there. So those resources are listed there for you this morning. Well, there was a certain church in which there was a man who always ended his prayers with this sentence, and Lord, clean the cobwebs out of my life, clean the cobwebs out of my life. The testimony is that every time he prayed, that's how he ended his prayer, clean the cobwebs out of my life. One of the members of the church became very weary of hearing the same insincere request week after week, and because he saw no change in the other guy's life, he determined that the next time he would do something about that. <laughs> As can only happen in a church, right? So the next time he heard the man pray, Lord, clean out the cobwebs of my life, he interrupted him as he was praying and said, and while you're at it, Lord, kill the spider. Now for those of you that aren't quite with me yet, you, you're going to take a little while and about halfway through my message this morning, you're going to go, I get it, I understand it. Don't just clean the cobwebs, but get rid of the source of the cobwebs, which is the spider. You know, it's one thing to offer the Lord a passionate prayer of confession, such as we talked about last week in Nehemiah chapter 9. And it's quite something else to live an obedient life after you say that amen. You see, we've got to be committed, once confession has come, we've got to be committed to something different, something bigger, something grander than ourselves if we're to make any progress in our lives. We can't just simply brush away the cobwebs, the consequences sometimes for us. We actually have to kill spiders. I don't know if you've noticed or not, but we live in a day of psychiatry and uh, psychology. It amazes me how many thousands of dollars some people spend uh, seeing a doctor, a counselor, a therapist on a weekly or a bi-weekly uh, basis. And every once in a while, I'll read an article which will ask the question, if we're spending so much money and so much time in a counselor's office, in a chair or lying on a sofa, why is it that there's so little change? Why is it for many that their problems continue year after year after year with no change? I, I would suggest to you this morning that many people don't change because they don't want to do the necessary things to change. Change is difficult. Change is painful. And, and I can tell you, I could sit here this morning and for probably a half an hour, I could give you illustration after illustration 
where if you're going to make a change in your physical life, it will be difficult. There will be pain. And the same thing is true, by the way, of your spiritual life. It's true in your relationship that you uh, enjoy or don't enjoy with your spouse or with uh, one of your children in your home or those of you that, that find yourself uh, still living with siblings, the reason why those relationships, if you're going to see any change in those relationships, it's going to be difficult. And, the most of the time, and most of the time, the reason why we don't see change is because it is too difficult to change. And so we don't see any change. We just continue to pay the thousands of dollars to sit on a sofa or sit in a chair and let somebody listen to our problems. But the people that we find here in Nehemiah Uh, are much different people. The people in this assembly, they were serious about praying and they determined by God's grace to make a new beginning, that things were going to be different. They weren't going to be the same. Now, I want to just give you a review. There were three stages to this revival that we've seen starting in Nehemiah chapter 8. You remember they heard the word and when they heard the word of God, when they understood the word of God, there was conviction in their lives. There was a realization that they had not lived according to the principles that God had given them. In fact, many of them, you'll remember from our time in Nehemiah 8, they had never even heard the word of God read. And when Ezra read that to them, that was the first they'd heard those things. But when they heard those things, there was conviction. And then you remember last week as we were in chapter 9, that as a result of conviction, repentance came. They didn't just say, oh, I feel really bad about that. They actually repented. They agreed with God that what I've been doing, what we have been doing as a people is wrong and we need to move in another direction. Well, the people continued to hear the word and and as they were convicted, they repented. Many people have expressed sorrow in their life and maybe it's been you uh, from time to time. You've expressed sorrow for your sin and you've acknowledged your shortcoming without changing. And that's the third stage that we find here in chapter 10. And that's why chapter 10 this morning is so important because in this chapter we read about their formal commitment to change, to change. And that was expressed in the form of a covenant. And so we're going to jump into chapter 9, verse 38. We're going to make our way through uh, chapter 10 here in the next uh, few minutes. And so uh, you fasten your seatbelt there and we'll get going. In verse 38 it says, Now because of all this, because of what? Because of the repentance that's come, because of the conviction that we've experienced, we're going to make an agreement. And I find it interesting in this particular text, they don't just say, hey, we're going to sit down and we're going to have a little talk. They actually make an agreement. And look at what the text says. They do it how? They do it in writing. Might be a good lesson for some of us, right? Not so, guys, that your wife can go, hey, you said, all right? Not not for that reason, but sometimes it's good to put something in writing. That's what these people did. And on the sealed document are the names of our leaders, our Levites, and our priests. Verse 1 of chapter 10, now on the sealed document there were the names of Nehemiah the governor, the son of Hakaliah, and Zedekiah. These were the two leaders. They were the, uh, the governing officials at the time. And then there were the priests. You see all the priests uh, listed there down through uh, verse 8. And then in, in verse 9, you see the Levites, and all the Levites' names are listed there. And we've read these men's names so many times that I'm not going to read them to you uh, this morning because some of you are probably keeping a really close eye on that, and you'll say, he pronounced that name differently than he did the last time. So in order to avoid that, I'm not even going to read those names, but those are the Levites down there through verse 13. And then you notice in verse 14 down through verse 27, these are just simply referred to as the leaders of the people. 
You remember a guy that we were introduced to last week uh, there in verse 15, Bunny. He's still there, all right? He's still, he's still hanging in with the group. They're the leaders of the people, and they are representing the people. In fact, verse 28 says, Now the rest of the people, the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, the temple servants, and all those who had separated themselves from the peoples of the lands to the law of, the, uh, law of God, their wives, their sons, and their daughters, all those who had a knowledge and understanding are joining with their kinsmen, their nobles, and are taking themselves a curse and an oath. There are many other people that, that subscribe to this covenant who didn't necessarily sign their names in verse 28. This would include uh, a lot of people uh, who didn't have the legal right to put a personal seal on an official document, but they were still saying, yes, we agree with that. All those that had the ability to be able to understand, those that had heard the word of God read, they, it was explained to them, and now they were committing themselves to obey what they had heard. Back in this day, back in this ancient day, putting a seal on a document was a very uh, solemn thing. It wasn't something that you did lightly. You and I are living in a culture when we can put a seal on something, we can get something notarized, and it, it seems as if, because of our court system and everything, that it's not really as official as one might lead us to believe. That there, There's always a way to get around this. Well, that wasn't the case. Uh, in fact, if, if you read about, and we won't take the time to turn back to the Old Testament book of Deuteronomy uh, and go to chapter 29, you'll see that it was a very, very serious thing for them to swear these oaths, for them to make these agreements. In fact, the law that governed the vows and the oaths is found in Numbers uh, chapter 30, and it's introduced with these words. Listen to this. When a man makes a vow to the Lord or takes an oath to obligate himself by a pledge, he must not break his word, but he must do everything that he said. Since an oath involved the name and possible judgment of God, it wasn't to be taken lightly. In fact, Jesus, in the book of Matthew, he warned people against making empty oaths, and Solomon did the same thing in the book of Ecclesiastes. And so the people, their commitment that they're making here today, that they're actually affixing a seal to, they're agreeing to these terms, their commitment can be summarized in, in basically four statements. Specific areas that had been at the core of Israel's moral and their spiritual decay. And I would say to you this morning that as we go through these four things here uh, real quickly, you'll see that probably it's true of your life and my life as well. That these are particular areas that if, if, if they're not aligned properly, they will lead to moral chaos, they will lead to spiritual chaos, and eventually they will lead to destruction. All of these things. Number one was this. We will obey Scripture. In other words, we'll read the Bible, and we'll not just read the Bible, but we'll actually do what it says. Verse 29 continues, our agreement was to walk in God's law, which was given through Moses, God's servant, and to keep and to observe all the commandments of God, our Lord, and his ordinance and his statutes. Let me tell you this morning, it is not enough for us simply to believe the Bible or even just to read the Bible. Uh, let me ask you this morning, not if you're willing to read the Bible, because a lot of people say, I'm willing to read the Bible, it's a good book. I know people that my grandma used to read the Bible. She used to have a big family Bible, you know, laying there on the, on the coffee table. And every once in a while, you know, and grandpa got upset, you know, she, or grandma got upset. She'd whack grandpa over the side of the head with it. Yeah, I know that Bible. That's a good book. And I might read it. Not are you willing to read it, but are you really willing to obey 
Scripture. You see, these people were basically saying, we are willing to test everything with the truth of Scripture. In other words, whatever counsel we receive from our friends, whatever ideas our culture throws at us as normal and acceptable, we'll check that against the truth that's found in Scripture. The bottom line was, we will order our lives around God's Word. Let me ask you this morning, do you have that kind of commitment to Scripture? That you are willing to order your life around it? I, I, from time to time, and I know I will this fall, I have uh, a few people, uh, sometimes within our body, sometimes without our body, that will put pressure on me to make political statements, just to kind of take a stand on one particular issue or on a particular candidate. And I have consistently said, in fact, I said this to you about six weeks ago, I have resisted that, and here's the reason why. I believe that if I and other leaders here at Northwest teach you to be people of God, people that are committed to the truth of Scripture, I don't need to spoon-feed you uh, political issues. Is that true? I don't need to do that. If you understand the Word of God and you are committed to living by biblical truth, I don't need to spoon-feed you on the issues. When an issue comes up and there's an amendment to a state constitution, you're able to weigh that based on the truth that you know Scripture to teach. And then the question comes for you, when you enter into that voting booth, am I committed to ordering my life based on what I know Scripture to teach? Does that make sense to you? And that's what we want to teach here at Northwest. That's the kind of church we want to be. We want to be ordered around the Word of God. On a regular basis as elders, as we deal with situations at Northwest, I can assure you we go back to the Word of God. How does God want us to deal with? What are the biblical principles that apply to this situation? It's so great to be able to do that, by the way, because when we order our lives personally, when we order our, our family life, when we order those things that we do within the context of, church, of the church, and we order it around God's word, there's incredible protection. Because even though there may, may be severe consequences for a decision we make, I know, and our elder team knows, that if we're making that decision based on the truth of God's word, that God is going to honor that decision. It's when we step outside of what we know to be truth, that's when disaster comes. There are many of us that need to make a commitment to start reading it, to start reading God's word, but I would say to you this morning, for some of us, knowing more is not the issue. Obeying what we already know to be true and right, that's the issue. And I'll let you decide which chair you fit in this morning, because I bet you fit in one or the other. You need to know the word of God more. You need to understand it more. Some of you that don't need to understand more, you need to do more with what you already understand. I would tell you that we will never be the church that we should be without knowing and applying the word of God. You're never going to be individually the Christ follower that you should be if you don't understand the word of God. You're never going to enjoy the blessings in your family that God wants you to enjoy. You're never going to bring much glory to God without knowing and living the truth of Scripture. And I've said it now, probably this is the fourth time within the context of our study of the book of Nehemiah, we have got to be people of the word. Nothing matters that I say from up front unless it's based on biblical truth. Now the second statement of the covenant was this, that we're going to lead our families. 
We're going to be people that are obedient to Scripture. And number two, we're going to lead our families. Look at verse 30. It says, and, and that we will not give our daughters to the peoples of the land or take their daughters for our sons. Now, you have to understand that in this particular culture, parents would arrange marriage for their children. <laughs> Some of you are going, oh, I thank Jesus that I wasn't born then. I'm so thankful that I live in America. I'm so glad to be an American. Can you imagine... How many of you are here this morning and you're single, all right? Of any age, you're single. Just raise your hand. Come on, stick them up high. Be proud, all right? All right, can you imagine if you lived in this culture where your mom and dad were making the decision about who you would spend the rest of your life with? Aren't you glad you live in the 21st century in America? Now, I kind of wish I lived back there because I'm already on the other side of it, and I could make decision, uh, decisions. Uh, my sons, uh, they'll, they'll do all right. Um, but, uh, you know, I'm thinking about my daughter. Um, if I were to ever let her get married, I would love to be under this principle that she couldn't marry anybody that I didn't make that decision for her. Amen. Can I, hear, can I get another amen from our dads? All right, Father's Day's coming up. And so as the Jewish people had lived in rebellion, in rebellion not following God's principles, They'd arranged for their sons and their daughters to marry those who were not followers of Jehovah God. It was very simple. Now, why would they ever want to marry pagan Gentiles in the first place? Well, I mean, I don't think it was much different then than it is now. For some reasons, you know, you go, wow, dad did a good job picking her out. Whew, boy, does she look good in that robe. And for that matter, I look good in mine too. There could have been just a simple physical attraction, right? I think sometimes it was more, more than that. Sometimes it could have been perhaps that they would marry for social status. In fact, we've already seen in the book of Nehemiah, and we'll see it again in chapter 13 that that happened. Or they, they could marry to get ahead in business. And like some believers today, they could have married unbelievers thinking, well, I'll, I'll win them over. They'll come to faith in Jesus somehow. I'll just, I'll win them over. They're not so bad. At the core, they're really a good person. Remember we talked about that last week, Jeremiah 17, 9. We're not basically good people. I shouldn't say you aren't. I'm not basically a good person. I'm basically an evil person that happens to do something good every once in a while without Jesus. With Jesus, with the Spirit of God indwelling my life, I'm capable of living the life, but not up until that point. People are not basically good. But sometimes we think we'll just kind of win them over somehow. Now, just to be clear, this wasn't a statement against bigotry. It wasn't a, a form of bigotry or, uh, or racism. In fact, we see that, uh, I don't know if you realize, Moses was married to an Ethiopian woman. And, and Ruth, remember where Ruth was from? She was from a heathen nation called Moab, and she married Boaz. I mean, a lot of women got bozos. She got Boaz. And yet she came from a heathen nation, but she loved God. See, this wasn't an issue of race, and it, it was really an issue of a commitment to God. It was the danger of having these people led away to worship pagan gods. In a nutshell, here's what they said. They said, we're not going to let our daughters marry non-Christian men. And we're not going to let our sons marry non-Christian women. We'll not let our children marry people that do not love Jesus. So you understand within the context, they had every right, every ability to be able to do that. Then as we get into the New Testament, Paul said it in 2 Corinthians 6, uh, verse 14, don't be bound together with unbelievers. In other words, don't be unequally yoked. What fellowship has light with darkness? 1 Corinthians 7, 39, where the Apostle Paul is, is talking about a wife whose husband has died, and he said if her husband died, she's free to marry. But he says at the end of that verse, only in the Lord. 
only if that person that she marries has a relationship with Jesus. Otherwise, she's not free to marry. One Bible teacher made this observation, and I like this, so I'll share it with you this morning. He said, some of you guys say, well, she's hot. And he said, so is hell. (laughs) You say, well, he believes in God. This Bible teacher said, so do demons. Do you want to marry one of them? And I really think that ultimately that, that is, that's the question. I want to do something this morning just, again, in this particular context here. I didn't pull this message out to preach to you, all right? I'm preaching right within the context of Nehemiah chapter 10. So if you're here and the heat's kind of coming under your chair, it was God's plan for you to be here. It's a wonderful thing, all right? It's not directed towards you personally unless the Spirit of God makes it find lodging in your heart this morning. But if you're here this morning and you're single... I want you to make a commitment or reaffirm that commitment that maybe you've made in the past that you will only marry a committed follower of Jesus Christ. Let me tell you this, that that in the best case scenario where two committed believers come into a marriage relationship, it is a difficult task living with another sinner, especially if the sinner happens to be a really big sinner like Diana ended up with. It's a very, very difficult thing. That's best case scenario when there are two people that love Jesus and they're pointed in the right direction, yet at the very base, Jeremiah 17, 9, their hearts are deceitful. They're wicked. Best case scenario, marriage is difficult. Now, while it is, can be incredibly awesome, and I can testify to that, it's incredibly difficult for two sinful people to live together. When one is headed in this direction and one is headed in that direction, Scripture asks the question, can two walk together unless they're agreed? Now what this commitment means is that you're willing to say that, hey, not only am I not going to marry an unbeliever, but I'm not going to be flirtatious with an unbeliever or do anything that would cause them to think that I would compromise on my commitment to spend the rest of my life with someone who loves Jesus and wants their life to be about bringing glory to him. Would you make that commitment this morning? I'm not going to ask you to stand. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand. I'm not going to ask you to sign a piece of paper and get the notaries walking around in the aisles. But I'll tell you this. If you're here this morning and you are a single follower of Jesus Christ, that is one of the biggest commitments that you can make in your life, which will determine to a certain extent the direction of the rest of your life. I challenge you to do that. All right, I jumped down off the soapbox. We'll go to commitment number three. Commitment number three was this. We will worship God. Look at verse 31. As for the people of the land who bring wares or any grain on the Sabbath day to sell, we're not going to buy from them on the Sabbath or a holy day, and we will forego the crops the seventh year and the exaction of every debt. Now, this was simply this. You you can read that and go, I have no clue what that just said. Well, that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to explain it to you. This was a commitment to make their corporate worship a priority even if it meant that they would experience a loss financially. You see, the Sabbath was distinctly a Jewish practice. The Gentiles didn't practice a Sabbath day, and they would treat that seventh day just like any other day. Some Jewish merchants found it to be profitable to keep their businesses open. Why? Because there were a whole lot of people that weren't violating the Sabbath because they didn't have a Sabbath. And so the Gentiles would frequent their businesses and they could sell them things. 
Now, Moses didn't spell out a lot of specific examples or rules for observing the Sabbath, but there was precedent for not engaging in unnecessary work. Uh, For example, if you go back to the Old Testament book of Exodus, uh, chapter 35, they weren't to light a fire on a Sabbath. Remember before the Sabbath started, boy, you better stoke that fire. You better get it really blazing because you've got a long period of time which you're going to have to do uh, without it. The prophets uh, in Jeremiah 17 uh, sternly rebuked the Jews for violating the Sabbath. Uh, Amos, in fact, said in uh, Amos 8 that it was because of their disobedience. Their disobedience was a symptom of a deeper spiritual problem, their rebellion against the Lord. Their disregard for the Sabbath, their disregard for corporately coming together in worship, their disregard for that was just simply an outward symptom of an internal problem that was plaguing them individually and as a people. Now, I I believe this, and and some of you may have a little bit different opinion, but I believe that today we live under in, in an age of grace, and I believe that as Christians living under grace that we're not subject to the Sabbath laws of the Old Testament. In fact, I think the New Testament makes it very clear in Galatians 4 and in Romans 14 that we are not to prefer one day over another day. But I will tell you this, for about the last 1,500 years or so, in the Christian church, Sunday has been the day that we in our culture have set aside for corporate worship. We worship God together. Let me ask you this. If we could pull out your family calendar right now, maybe it's on your iPhone Uh, maybe you're like my wife and you've still got one of those big paper calendars. If we could pull it out right now and we could just start thumbing back month after month after month, would we, as we looked it over, would we observe that corporate worship with other Christ followers is a priority in your life? What would we find if we looked back Sunday after Sunday after Sunday after Sunday after Sunday? I I really want to challenge you uh, this morning to do this. I really want to challenge you to make sure that your corporate time of worship is a priority to you, not only individually, but to your family. I really want you to do that. So that, uh, uh, that it becomes something that, that, that is very important to you. It's almost like, like for me, not missing one of my son's football games. I'm just not going to do that, right? My sons could have been playing competitive badminton, and I would have been there. I would move heaven, earth, the whole deal just to be there to see them. It was a priority in my life. You've got priorities like that in your life. I ask you, does corporate worship rank as a priority in your life? And and I want you to do that, and I say that to you on June 10th as we head into summer. Here's what's so common for us to do. It's so common for us to get off work on Friday, to leave, to go on vacation, and to get back Sunday afternoon, get the car unpacked, get everything put back, and then get up in the morning, and you're not really ready to get to work on Monday morning, and you go and you kind of give a, a half job to your employer that next day and for the next couple days because you're so exhausted from vacation. Right? It's the American way. That's what we do. L- let me challenge you to do this, or at least to consider doing these things, that you say, hey, you know what, gang, we're going to come back on Saturday. And we're going to get the car unpacked, and we're going to have time to, 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 you know, to get the air conditioning back up on the ho- in the house and, and to get a good night's sleep. We're going to go to church. We're going to worship with our brothers and sisters. We're going to have a good time together as a part of the body of Christ. We're going to rest on Sunday so that on Monday we're ready to start our work. I'm, re- I'm ready to go back to the work week. I'm ready to go back to my employer and give them a fair day's labor for a fair day's wage. Let me encourage you to do that. One of the most significant areas of spiritual decay for these people was when they neglected corporate worship. Let's not do that. 
let's not do that. It's been interesting here at Northwest that uh, in our brief time, uh, summers have actually been a very strong time for us. Uh, We've actually had new people come in the summer, and, and that's a great thing. But I say let's make corporate worship, the idea of being together, rubbing shoulders with one another and encouraging one another, let's make that a priority. The solemn affirmation of faith reported in this chapter also included observing the sabbatical year. That was that every seventh year the Jews were to let the land lie idle so that it could restore itself. Now it wasn't just for the land to restore itself. It was also so that if they didn't plant something in that seventh year, then obviously if you didn't plant, you're not going to what? You're not going to reap either. And so the idea was that they would, every seven years, they would be put in a situation not only to let the land replenish itself, but they would be put in a situation where they would also have to trust God to provide for them because they weren't able to use uh, their land. They had decided that they wouldn't do that. They had quit doing uh, that, uh, observing that sabbatical year. The evidence is that the nation had not faithfully celebrated these observances, and as a result, it was one reason why if we read in 2 Chronicles chapter 36, we realize that God sent them into captivity, <laughs> that he might give the land 70 years of rest, right? If you're in captivity, nobody's farming your land. And this would compensate for some 500 years of disobedience on the part of the nation of Israel, one year for each neglected sabbatical year. Now, for the Jewish remnant to promise to commemorate the sabbatical year was an incredibly big step of faith for them. Because it wasn't just an an issue of them making God a priority in their life. It was actually saying, not only your priority, but we we trust in you, we believe in you, because our very uh, ability to be able to even survive is totally dependent upon Jehovah God. It's a beautiful illustration of obedience. The last characteristic or the last uh, part of their commitment that they were making, number four, was that they would give generously. It said, We also placed ourselves under obligation to contribute yearly one-third of a shekel for the service of the house of God, for the showbread, for the continual grain offering, for the continual burnt offering, the Sabbaths, the new moon, for the appointed times, for the holy things and for the sin offerings to make atonement for Israel and all the work of the house of God. Here's how it worked. An annual census was taken, and if you were 20 years of age or older, Exodus chapter 30, you were expected to pay a temple tax. In fact, if you go back to Exodus 30 and read, you'd read that it was the collecting of a half-shekel tax that was to be used to support the ministry of the temple, the house of God. The tax was a reminder to people that they had been redeemed, and there was a price that had been paid to set them free, and they should be be people who behaved that way as well, people who belong, as people who belong to God. The temple tax had been fixed at a half a shekel, and yet we read here in this particular text that they were going to give a third of a shekel. Now, scholars aren't sure exactly why there's a differentiation in the, ta- in the, in the uh, tax in this particular text. Some have suggested that it might have been a, a valuation between the Jerusalem and Babylonian shekel. Uh, I tend to kind of laugh at that particular notion. You know, it's not like uh, on the TV screen you see the Jerusalem shekel flashing and you see, I just don't think that that's probably likely that that was happening. I think it's more likely that there was an exception that was made because of the extreme poverty of these people. And in any case, it really doesn't matter. The bottom line was that they were people who were committed to responding sacrificially. 
You notice verse 33 at the end says why they would be giving this money. They would be giving this money to take care of the house of God. Verse 34, likewise, we cast lots for the supply of wood among the priests, the Levites and the people, so that they might bring to the house of the so that they might bring it to the house of our God, according to the Father's households, at fixed times annually to burn on the altar of the Lord our God as it is written in the law. You'll remember if you're a student of Jewish history in the Old Testament that there was a fire that was burning on the brazen altar at all times. And you can imagine to keep that fire burning at all times, that took a lot of wood. It wasn't like they had a gas line, you know, from the gas company that was just there and you go, wow, constant fire. That wasn't the case. There had to be physical wood that was put on that fire in order for that altar to continually be going. The leaders drew lots, and they assigned various clans at times when they were to bring the wood that would be used for the altar. Um, I think that that's such a great thing, by the way. If you think about it, there's so many of these people, and there wasn't a lot that they could do. They were extremely poor. But what they could do is they could go gather this wood and they could bring it to the temple to be used in burning at the brazen altar. I think it's a good lesson for us today that you may find yourself in a very difficult position financially and yet still be in a position where there's something that you can do, something that you could give. Yeah, for some of them, they weren't in a position to be able to donate a a beautiful lamb or an oxen for a sacrifice but everybody could find some wood that they could bring to keep the fire burning. Look at verse 35. And that they might bring the first fruits of our ground and the first fruits of all the fruit of every tree to the house of the Lord annually and bring to the house of our God the firstborn of our sons and of our cattle and the firstborn of our herds and of our flocks as it is written in the law for the priests who are ministering in the house of our God. Verse 37, we'll also bring the first of our dough This dough is in bread, okay? It's not like slang for, you know, the dough that's in your wallet, all right? Just want to make sure you understand that. Our dough, our contributions, the fruit of every tree, the new wine and the oil to the priests at the chambers of the house of our God, and the tithe of our ground to the Levites, for the Levites are, are they who receive the tithes in all the rural towns. The priest, the son of Aaron, shall be with the Levites when the Levites receive tithes, and the Levites shall bring up the tenth of the tithes to the house of our God to the chambers of the storehouse. For the sons of Israel and the sons of Levi shall bring the contribution of the grain, the new wine, and the oil to the chambers. There are the utensils of the sanctuaries, the priests who are ministering, the gatekeepers, and the singers. Thus we will not neglect the house of our God. Here's the bottom line. In verses 35, 36, and 37, we read about first fruit offerings. Some of you maybe have heard that terminology, and yet you've never really understood uh, what that meant. It was very simple. They were taught to give God the best, or the first and the best. And I really believe that's a good example for us to follow today. From time to time, somebody will say to me, hey, I've got a, I just got a new laptop, and I've got an old one, and if you know a missionary that could use it, I'd love to, I'd love to give them that laptop. Well, I bet you would, because it's as slow as molasses. It don't, it won't do anything. It won't run particular programs, but you're going to share it with a missionary. And it's almost when people say that as if they expect, thanks for sharing with the missionary that broken down, no good laptop. God appreciates that. You see, what these people understood was they were taught that you're to honor God. In fact, Proverbs 3.9 says, honor the Lord with your wealth, with the first fruits of all your crops. 
After 25 years of ministry, I'm still waiting for the person that comes up to me and says, hey, I was going to get a new laptop, but instead, I want to get a missionary, a MacBook Air, like the nicest one. In fact, let's wait a few weeks and let's wait for the new one to come out. And I want to get that for them, and I want you to ship it for them and just say that somebody loves them. I'm still waiting for somebody to do that, to give the first, to give the best. See, that's what these people were committed to do. Also, because God had saved the firstborn Jews, or firstborn of the Jews from death in the land of Egypt, the firstborn child belonged to the Lord as well. Now, a very interesting concept, right? You have your firstborn, and you go, oh, sorry, that's just the luck of the draw. You were the firstborn, so we're taking you to the temple. You know, the kid's a baby, he doesn't really know, right? I kind of thought as I was studying this this week, I thought, well, that's a pretty cool thing. You know, if you get a baby and you go, nah, not exactly what I was expecting. Oh, it's God's. You know, go ahead and we'll just take it over there to him. All right, that's not how it worked. It wasn't like you took it and you were expected to leave it, but the idea was redemption. A price has been paid for you. You've been redeemed. And there was a sum of money that was given to the work of the ministry. We find it very strange in our culture, but they didn't. They practiced this on a regular basis. So the firstborn son had to be redeemed by a sacrifice because that child belonged to God. Now, I think it's interesting that nowhere in Scripture does it tell us how much of the first fruits the people were to bring to the temple. But we do know that it was to be brought before the people did anything else with their harvest. I really believe that that's an important thing for you and I to understand. That we don't don't pay all of our bills and we don't do all of our stuff and everything that we want to do and we go... God, you've been good. I have some left over for you now. That's not what we do. We give him the first fruits. I want to challenge you to do that. As somebody who, uh, honestly, if I'm transparent with you this morning, I don't have that, 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 that natural gift of giving. Um, I wouldn't say I'm a hoarder. You know, I'm not going on TLC anytime soon. I'm going to star on that show. I, I wouldn't say that. But, I, but I'm not naturally somebody who just goes, ah, hey, here, you can have it. Yeah, I don't want it. Didn't want it anyway. Take the new iPad. I don't really care. Take the iPhone. I don't need that either. Just to, I'm not naturally wired that way. Some of you are. And I, and I came to the conclusion uh, several years ago that the best thing for me to do was to automate my giving, at least my first fruits giving that I would just give right off the top, and it would be gone right out of my account, just like anything else. And it would be the first thing that would be taken out. And it's been really good for me because I have to stay disciplined with it. And I don't wonder how much better I could do if I just kept that money and what investment I could make and how I could make that grow. I give it back to the God who gave it to me, who I can entrust it with to do something far greater than I could ever ask or imagine. Now, they were supposed to give a tithe, and the word tithe means a tenth. We've talked about it in the past, so I won't go through it all again, but we don't teach tithing uh, here at Northwest Community Church. In other words, just giving simply 10% of your income. Uh, That was the standard under the Old Testament law. Some people think, but if you were to actually look at their responsibility in the Old Testament, it actually came out to 25% plus. So if you really think you're committed to the biblical tithe, then make it truly biblical, okay? Don't just give 10%. Make sure you're giving at least 25%, okay? We're, thankfully for you, we don't believe that. We don't teach that that's the obligation of us, those of us believers that are living under grace. Instead, we teach what's found in the book of 2 Corinthians chapters 8 and 9. I gave this to you just a few weeks ago, which pr- provides, I think, a guideline for how we're to give. We're to give cheerfully, cheerfully. You shouldn't be putting your money in that box back there going, oh, 
You go, woo, I get to throw that in there. Wonder how they're going to use that. I can assure you we're going to use it well, and so you should be cheerful. You're to give generously, not grudgingly, but generously, sacrificially. That looks different for me than it might for you or for some other person that you're sitting around. And we are to give regularly. We're to give systematically. 2 Corinthians uh, chapters 8 and 9. Now, in light of all that God's done for us, I think that it'd be a pretty easy thing to say that uh, that's a little bit of an expectation for us to give back to him a portion of what he's blessed us with. I will say that you certainly found this to be true with the children of Israel, and I think you find it to be true with us living in the 21st century in the United States of America, where there is true spiritual revival. It reveals itself in the way we support God's work. I really believe that. I think we have to so love the Lord that generous giving will be a normal and a joyful part of our lives. And and really, the ultimate question is not how much are we required to give, but really maybe asking the, the reverse question, how much is proper for us to keep for ourselves? I love that last phrase there at the end of the chapter in verse 39. They did all of this because of a larger commitment that they voiced in this particular phrase. We will not forsake the house of our God. I love Winston Churchill. I quote him from time to time. Winston Churchill said this, we make a living by what we get, but we make a life by what we give. In fact, Jesus said that in Matthew chapter 6 and verse 21, where your treasure is, what what follows it. That's where your heart is uh, as well. You know, these four commitments that we find in Nehemiah chapter 10, they were a response to what God was doing in their hearts. They repented, and as a result of the repentance, they desired uh, for change to come. And the covenant for them represented, this is my plan. Really, the bottom line, the big idea this morning from Nehemiah chapter 10 is this, that lasting change requires commitment which is accomplished with a plan. And I want to ask you this morning, do you have a plan? (laughs) It's not enough just to say, well, I'm going to change this. Then you go out of here and you go, whew, got away with that. I'm convinced so many times we sense conviction when we hear the word of God, just like these people did. And yet we have no plan to change. We sense the conviction. I don't know if you've ever sat there and I've been in a service before, heard the word of God and gone... I need to do that. I need to change in that area of my life. And it's as if Satan is on the shoulder going, if you'll wait just a few minutes, he'll close. And once you leave, you'll feel better. Trust me. Anybody else ever felt that way? No, just me. Okay. But I felt that way before. I really have felt, just just hang on. Just hang on. Don't change just yet. Don't come up with a plan. Don't do that. You're going to be okay. You'll feel better in a few moments. Lasting change requires not only the commitment, but it requires a plan in order to be able to change. And as we close this morning, I want you just to spend a few moments as I pray. We're going to spend just a few moments in silence, and then I'll pray. And I want you to think through those areas in your personal life, your family life, the life that you live as part of a church family. And let me ask you to do this. I want you to ask yourself the question, or ask God the question, God, what needs to change? Some of it you may have already been convicted of, and you may have just listened to the same guy that I listened to that said, just wait, everything's going to be okay, you're going to get out in just a few moments, and you won't feel this anymore. 
So you already know you don't even have to pray and say, what do you want me to change? You know what needs to be changed. As we close, I want you to pray that prayer. What needs to change, God? Bring conviction in my heart. And when there's conviction that comes, I'll repent. I'll move in a new direction, and I'll come up with a plan to see lasting change in my life. I want to encourage you, don't just get up there and clean out the cobwebs. You need to kill a few spiders. That'd be the best thing that you could do. Let's pray. Just take just a few seconds here and and do what I just asked you to do. God, what in my life needs to change this morning? What needs to change in my personal life? What needs to change in my family life? Maybe things that need to change in my workplace, at my school, my involvement with the larger body of Christ here at Northwest or some other place. What needs to change, God? Ask God to bring conviction in that area of your life. And then as he brings conviction, don't walk out of this auditorium this morning and just think, okay, soon this will be over. I'll get over it and I'll move on to the next thing. Come up with a plan. Once there's been confession, once there's been repentance and acknowledgement of your sin, come up with a plan to change so that you don't just simply swipe away cobwebs, but you kill spiders.